Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is just two of us this week. Um, you'll be listening to this on January 25th, which is a Tuesday. Um, Andy is off doing something, taking care of something. So today is just me and Tammy from Korea. Tammy, how are you doing? Hey, Jay. What's up? I'm good. I'm very good. tired, but I'm good. How are you? Good. Tammy, you're just uh, off air. You're telling me about you know, how you're, you've been sleeping on this very uncomfortable Korean bed. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, is there, do you want to give us can you give the, the listeners an explanation of korean beds if they're not from korea or don't know actually this from is korea? just like a normal western twin bed but the mattress is made of something god awful i have no idea i've never had any trouble sleeping in my life this is the first time i've ever had problems uh, what's like wrong with the bed talent. specifically is it like it's a, basically like made of plastic i don't know oh it doesn't oh, yeah. have any it's just hard and i don't know do you sleep soft or hard because i usually don't care it doesn't matter it's horrible yeah yeah i don't really That's think about it very much but yeah. like um the uh have you seen those like you know those korean beds that are like a heated stone basically? yeah, <laughs> yeah. That can would you be sleep better. on one of those yeah okay. like, I, I feel like that would be more consistent this is like it's supposed to be a mattress but it feels like a stone <laughs> Uh, you know, Jakey, who uh, Jakey Cho, who is the guy yeah. who he was on our show before, he was on the show, yeah. and he's uh, sort of committed his life to becoming like a full time influencer recently, and so he's been posting a lot more videos. Okay. In one of the videos, he goes to his parents' house in Queens, and it's pretty funny because they have one of those, you know, and he's like doing a video explaining. He's like, "Yo, this is what a this is what a bed <laughs> that's a stone that's a heated stone is all about in Korea." And I was like, I hadn't thought about one of those for like. I swear to God, 30 years, you know, Do maybe longer. Do they sleep longer. in it every night or is it just like there? <laughs> no, I think they use it as part of their like routine, you know. They yeah. also had this thing that I had never seen oh before, God. actually. I'm sure you've seen it before, but it's like basically a chair and the bottom of the chair is a sauna. Have you seen this? Wait, what? And so it's like a half sauna. So it's like almost, he's like, he said it looks like Professor X is like, you know, like Professor X goes around in that like sort of floating wheelchair thing, you know. Yeah, it yeah. does actually look exactly like that. He's, you know, he's very talented at like coming up with descriptions. And so you put this like you sit in this chair and it goes over your legs and you slide this wooden thing over over like to your waist, like basically to like the middle of your belly. Okay. And then your legs are getting like just assaulted with uh, sauna heat while the top of you. <laughs> <laughs> never, so have you like seen that before? I never just for your legs. Yeah, but it's just a sauna <laughs> for your legs. Yeah, it's like a it's like a sauna hot tub thing. I've never seen one of those before. I've never I mean, seen that. That okay, sounds good. really inefficient. Like, how big is it? it? Sounds it must be really big. It's really big. I mean, it would take <laughs> up like it would if you had it in like a normal, not a normal, but if you had it in like let's say like the type of New York City apartment you live in when you're. 27 years old or you take up half of your living room yeah <laughs> it's like a couch yeah it's exactly. like having an extra couch I'm like, <laughs> okay good i don't feel bad because sometimes when i was watching it i was like you know you do that sort of assessment of yourself and you're like oh how much korean shit do i actually know you know and then i was like based on was that like, okay i know the stone bed thing, yeah you know and then i was like but what the fuck is that sauna chair and then i was like oh my god does everyone know about the sauna chair except me but apparently that not. sounds ridiculous no I you don't you don't know about it um <laughs> behind yeah. the times do you ever go to sauna in um in the bay no especially not post-covid i mean yeah it seems kind of 
I don't know. I went to the pool yesterday with my kid. Oh, did? So and nice. um, I went into the locker room and, you know, trying to be cool it? about most COVID stuff. <laughs> and it's disgusting, you know? Like, I, I mean, I they're think disgusting it's gonna take... anyway. <laughs> I know, I know. I think it's just going to take me a little bit of, like, I wasn't worried I was going to, like, breathe in coronavirus or yeah. Omicron or whatever. It's just like, this is nasty. I'm just not really used to being in gross public places with a yeah, lot of other people, exactly. you know? And then I was I like, this is disgusting. You know, the floor is disgusting. All these people are just like sitting around breathing everywhere the air smells terrible it's like i just need to get out of here so um anyway yeah maybe i'll just never it's it might be one of those things that we never get used to you know yeah i know like the the kind of like moist public spaces thing is not (laughs) yeah that's a good like it never was good and now it's just disgusting (laughs) have you have you been to uh have you been to uh, Mokyuktang since I you've been there? I wanted to go, but it's the same thing. Like, I was too freaked out. And actually, a lot of them are closed and taking <laughs> okay. breaks. Like, I do feel really bad for the small businesses here. Like, all the Norebang right. and, like, Mokyuktang are closed, basically. Yeah. And yeah. I have no idea how these people are making a living. But my mom has never been to a Norebang or a Mokyuktang, like, in recent years. And so I was going to take her to do all these Korean things. And we haven't been able to do any of them. She hasn't been in, like, they don't have Norebang in in uh tacoma she has she them but go? my mom is really bad at like doing fun things that are frivolous oh, and it. so i was like oh we should do like all these things that you never did in your youth and now we can't <laughs> do any of them <laughs> yeah good i i think go to i i actually think going yeah like korean you know, mokyuk tang for those who don't speak korean is uh it's just like the korean it's like we spa or something if you live in la mm-hmm. right it's that like was... a korean korean bathhouse and um I actually can't think of a place that would make me more uncomfortable because of COVID than one of those, one of those places. I know. Except maybe like, I don't want to be like, you know, racist here. So I'm not going to rank them. But like that and the Russian bathhouses in New York City, you know, <laughs> yeah. both of them would be out. You know, I'd be like, no yeah. way. I'm, I'm not so. going to either. I, think it's, I feel like a swimming pool is better, right? Because the chlorine, is that what you were thinking? Or Right. And it tends to have more air. It's not all like sort yeah. of recirculated yeah. hot air, you know, like steam and shit. Like <laughs> yeah, it's just exactly. so gross. Um. I wonder if I'll be able to go back. Like, what year do you? I wonder what. I know these are the things that are just. I don't know if we can go back to them. The year, like, what year will I be comfortable going? Have you ever been in that (laughs) uh, Russian bathhouse in the East Village, for example? No, I know. My friends used to go a lot, and I, I don't know. It just never appealed to me. Have you? Like, what year will I be? Yeah, I used to go a lot actually with my friend Eric. Okay. Um, and uh, he had like some sort of season pass type of thing there. We I don't even that. understand it, but he was very proud of it. And he'd be like, "Yo, let's go to the Russian pass. I got, <laughs> I, you know, I got to use up my season pass. Like, what the fuck is a season pass to the That's Russian pass? <laughs> so he used to go all the time. And so um, I would go with him quite a bit. And you know, it is kind of nice. I will say the part that I did enjoy is that when you like go to the like banya or whatever the room is called, that's super hot, and then you get uh-huh. super like you're steamed up and then you walk outside and it's like 15 degrees out and then your head starts steaming and everything. It's kind of a cool effect, you know, but um, <laughs> I don't know. That's out for me. Okay. I always what feel like I'm going to pass out from those places also. Oh, you get like a woozy I thing. Just, yeah. The heat yeah. Is, is too much anyway. I don't, I don't really get that. I just get like a kind of disgusted it's gross. sense the whole time. It's like kind of gross, you know? I went to one in Brighton Beach and – 
it was Maybe like you like all the Russian Eastern European ones. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> you're following them. I have been to a lot, and so and um, maybe I'm maybe I'm sad that it's now been cut out of my life. But I just don't need yeah. to do it anymore. Um, also, like you know, whatever. Um, okay, that's a good. We have a good segue then to our first topic today, which uh, I wasn't even going to make the first topic, but the segue is so good that we shouldn't. I think we should talk about it, which is that. <laughs> In Jezebel, this uh, when was this out? Um, let's see, last it came week. out what last week sometime. Yeah. A writer named uh, Daniel Chalokian wrote a piece that I thought was, you know, um, you sent it around. I read it uh, today, and I wanted to talk about it because I actually, it, it's about a woman who was struggling with a lot of substance abuse, and then um, you know that was obviously made, exacerbated because of the pandemic, um, and. Uh, and then suddenly decided because of like this sort of tender moment that she describes in the piece in which she, a doctor is sort of looking after her and she's basically saying, look, I, you know, like I'm just being objective here, but I should probably end my own life, right? Like, because like, I'm just a drain on resources and stuff like that. He says something nice to her. And then soon after that, she sort of stops drinking, right? And I think this piece had some, uh, quite a bit of legs online. Um, I saw it a couple of times. Like, I, it seems like mm-hmm. you saw it a lot too. Yeah. Um, and it was being passed around a lot. And so, like, there's no real logic to what articles go viral. But I think this one probably resonated with a lot of people because it's very honest about, um, you know, like some of the mental health issues that everyone is going through, a lot of the way that people yeah. cope. And then it's also kind of like hopeful, you know, like it's not one of these like we're all going to die and democracy is over and, uh, <laughs> you know, our children are going to be like walking along you know, it's going to be like station 11 all over have you seen station 11 yet i have to see it you oh, really good. liked it right yeah i liked it um but it is like an apocalypse grim apocalyptic yeah. vision oh, yeah. in some ways I've been but watching so many of those yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i don't know tammy what'd you think about mm-hmm. this piece like uh you wanted to yeah. talk about it. tell me why well, you I wanted was really to talk touched about it. by it because you know so basically the arc of it is like she has this interaction with a, a doc you know at the very end of 2019 and starts cleaning up her life but in 2020 kind of falls into the same morass that basically all of us were in but as you were saying kind of exacerbated by this you know being in and out of her addiction and then in 2021 kind of actually does really kick it She's a writer, so she tries to go back to writing. She'd been in a slump for a really long time. And she basically moves out of New York City and with friends um, and a cat upstate and sort of reclaims her life and, like, starts writing again. And and so this whole idea of kind of finding relationships and finding yourself again and trying to clean up yourself during the pandemic, I thought was interesting because I think in terms of mental health, which I think we've touched on a little bit on the show, but maybe not a ton. I think the pandemic's been a real mixed bag. Like we know obviously that people are suffering from a lot of depression and I know a lot of, I mean, I think I've felt it and I know a lot of people in my life have, but also there are these things, some things good have come out of it. Like for instance, I know that for some of, when I was teaching, like some of my students who had, um, significant like mental health struggles they liked being online more you know it kind of like eased their anxiety there were these different things that were kind of playing against each other in terms of the the sort of balance sheet of mental health and so yeah I was curious what you thought because I know you've been you've written a lot about addiction and you know thought about this stuff and then um yeah just what kind of what you have observed around the people in your life um during this period yeah I mean I think people are generally 
uh, this I'm speaking only for myself and not specifically about any person. But I would say of all the people that I know, that more people are drinking more than they mm-hmm. were before the pandemic. But that's also hard to gauge, right? Because yeah. like, uh, were they, are people drinking more because they don't go to bars and parties and it feels like they're drinking more because they're usually just I drinking see. in their ha- own house, which usually generates more guilt, right? Especially just do it by <laughs> right. yourself. Yeah. It could be on volume, like, out, you know, by an ounce level, they're drinking the same or they're drinking less, you know, but mm-hmm. um, I guess I've just had heard people talk about it more. Um, now, in terms of like uh, hard drugs or anything like that, I don't know, because I don't really know that many people who um, I'm 42 year old dad in Berkeley, like, you know, like, this is not <laughs> people that are. And also, I don't really have that many friends. So like, I don't even know. <laughs> but um you know, I don't know. I think everyone has some sort of coping mechanism to deal with all of this, yeah. right? And that and the the chances are that it's become ingrained much more because every day is the same, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this repetitiveness about it. And so I appreciate the piece just because it showed, look, it doesn't have to be the same. Right. You know, you can sort of jolt yourself out of this. And uh, you don't have to sort of sit in despair and just assume that, you know, this is going to be the rest of your life, even though, I don't know, maybe it will be. You know, um, <laughs> I've been like very like there's no I've been just thinking all the time about like off ramps from all of this, you know, yeah, I have no clue what we're going to do as a society. And some now look, there are some places where there's no off ramp necessary, right? Like, so if you go to Oklahoma, for example, like, you know, like, what does that off ramp really need to be? You know, they lift a few mandates and the kids don't really wear masks in school anyway. That's a big one, right? Most people are working, right? So like, you know, like this is all stuff that is, uh, that's just going back to normal. But in places like where I live, you know, like it's a lot harder because all the schools, the kids wear masks and um, all the offices are empty. Basically everyone's working from home and yeah. um, the restaurants and bars are like, you know, like people are like, oh, people are in them. But not really. <laughs> you know, you go by them I and you're see. like, you don't really see really, people. Really, they're in them. empty. I see. Yeah. And everything is delivery. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's uh, like, I would say that, like, of the, this is something we're going to talk about a little bit later. But like, you know, like this idea that happened right around the recovery, economic recovery post, like the giant crash that happened post pandemic. Right. Which, I think a lot of people didn't really even feel that much because they were too worried about everyone dying, you know, but there's like this massive economic crash that happens, like stock market plummets and then it almost recovers almost immediately. But what's driving that recovery is basically tech tech stuff like, you know, like Instacart or Peloton or um, Mm -hmm. stuff that assume like a life indoors in your own house. Right. Um, That type of life, I think a lot of people are living around me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't yeah. feel necessarily normal. Yeah. And I don't know what the pathway back to like normal is, you know, because I would rather live in a normal world than a world where everyone is like doing fucking Peloton and like ordering Instacart all the time. You know, that mm-hmm. world sucks. So uh, but I actually don't know when the people around here are going to calm down enough around it. Now, it's justified right now <laughs> because the rates are so high because of Omicron, you know, but let's say we get to a point like where it's very low and positivity rates are very low and like there's no variant going around and most people are vaccinated i actually don't think that we're going to go back to like quote normal here for like two years or something like that of that condition in terms of daily behaviors and yeah yeah Mm -hmm. people going to offices you know downtown san francisco for example being like full 
right? And having a lot of people there. Right. Um, you know, like I the, think especially in that area because of because the tech companies themselves have made a lot of promises around, you know, only going right. back partially or whatever. Right. I start, I was talking to I've been reading a lot of CEO takes on pandemic work from home because I'm just curious like what these people are putting out publicly CEO or COO yeah, CEO oh, oh. <laughs> he is like talking about he's like trolling like master class of just you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly I mean it's really interesting because I you know obviously they have a public line they need to tow right. but almost all of the CEO accounts I've read are basically saying we're going to be we're, we're going to be home for a long time or we're never going to go back to an office we're giving up our lease and then I was talking to some labor sociologists and experts about this, and they don't, nobody really seems to think this is true, that the, the kind of like control that bosses have in a workplace is like so desirable for them that eventually we are going to get back to a, a state of normal. Oh, yeah. That was kind of interesting. So we'll see. I mean, I, I think like one thing the Jezebel article made me think about was like the intensity of like the habits that you were mentioning, but also the the particular like small group of relationships we have during the pandemic and kind right. of like how, if that will change, like in terms of social, sociality, like I know my world, I think all of our worlds have shrunken and for some that has been clarifying and good. Like I think people have been able to maybe get away from certain kinds of toxic relationships or, right. um, you know, which isn't to say, of course, that like domestic violence and stuff like that isn't happening and maybe has intensified, um, right. but maybe at like the friend level or sort of like the secondary and tertiary levels of relationships, we've been able to cut some of that out. And I like, like that. people who don't live in your house. People, <laughs> yeah. It's a very small yeah. circle. Now. Yeah. But just like, you're like, okay, that person wasn't a really a good friend to me anyway, right, you know, right, or like right. this person has really come out and helped me. Like a Marie Kondo of friends or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Does this person I mean, bring me joy? I, Jay yeah, Kang, exactly. yes or no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's going to get a lot of no's. But the the I I think that like uh, I I guess like it was also yeah that sort of remind me of Gersh Steinbergart's book too. You know, like yeah, it's sort of totally. this idea of like, well, how do we do this reckoning in this? Yeah. Of our not just of our like, but of the people around us and whatever our worlds used to be. And what they're going to become, you know, and then if we lose somebody, like, how does that affect it? You know, like, totally. if somebody dies from the pandemic, like, how does, how does that change things? Yeah. Um, and like, how does that change the way that we live in this thing where right now that I think for a lot of people, the pandemic is still abstract in some sort of ways, right? Um, and I would say, mm-hmm. like, again, this is like the most privileged like these are yeah, very privileged which, people for whom the for sure. pandemic is abstract. Um, but I also think there are probably people who are not as privileged for whom the pandemic is also abstract. It might even feel fake, right? You hear about it all the time. That's true. And so like, yeah. it's just weird because it's just like, I don't, you know, um, I don't actually know how people are going to like, it seems like all the predictions that are happening right now have been wrong. Right. Like, um, like for example, like this idea that like we were all gonna live in pods and you know um, never go out again. It's not true for the vast majority of the country, yeah. right? Um, this idea that like uh, Hollywood would completely shift and the idea of like a box office release, for example, would go away. That's not true because Spider Man just like blew out every single record in the theater, right? I actually have this thing where like oh, all the really? movies that are that come out on in theaters, like I have, I like, I can't cr- quite grasp it yet. 
So like I I want to watch House of Gucci for example. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I want to see why. that too. <laughs> yeah. And it like it has never quite like I keep searching for it on every single streaming platform because it hasn't like <laughs> done. I mean it's just not on a streaming platform. It's in the theater. <laughs> like, I'm just like what are you talking about? What is the theme? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what is the theme? What's you the haven't theater? been to a movie yet? <laughs> no, of course not. Oh. The last movie I saw was uh bad boys the the bad boys uh whatever the last bad boys movie was which by the way i absolutely enjoyed of course you know and that was the first movie i'd seen in a theater in like five years or something like oh that my so God. i've been to like one movie in seven years or something oh, oh no and it okay. was well, the, so new, it was the latest the bad boys, <laughs> the latest bad boys movie. yeah i know um i don't know it's uh it's an interesting question though i don't really I don't really know how people are going to operate. I will give away a little bit of Station Eleven, although I think you should watch it, you know, but obviously, like, it doesn't give anything away to explain Mm -hmm. that, like, you know, it's like there's a big flu that kills Mm -hmm. everybody. And then the show is about, like, people who survive, which is a very small group of people. And, um, you know, part of it is that these people for like 100 days had to stay inside their houses while everyone was dying, you know, and like the small, the Mm -hmm. small number of people who actually did survive. And so uh, there is this like interesting part that's very resonant with the, in some ways, obviously in this dramatized and intense way with the pandemic where you see people try and like figure out how to talk to each other once again and who to yeah. trust and who not to trust. And Did they um, get chosen or was it an accident, the people who survived? It was, a, it was an accident. Okay. Like, you know, so like some people survived. were like weirdly immune to it, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then some people were able to like lock themselves indoors without getting in. They were very lucky, for example. You gotcha. know, um, yeah. they didn't really explain it very well in the show. I don't know if they explained it in the book or not, but I heard the show is better than the book. So actually, have you read the book? Oh, it's based on. See, I didn't even know that. No. Yeah, it's read. It's like some okay. international bestseller book Probably that I had no idea so existed it. either until like two episodes in the show when someone was like, oh, you should read the book. I was like, what book? Oh my <laughs> I God. Like, I have no I fucking know. clue. such a um, snob. I'm like, was it an LRB? Right. <laughs> no. It was not, Although it was, it's it. supposed to be like one of these like science fiction books where the author is very insistent that it's not a science fiction book. Oh, know? I see. Okay, yeah, like, yeah. No, it's literally. Genre I went to Iowa. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's that type of book. So, right, you right. know, you can okay. judge uh, on whether you like that type of thing or not. But uh, yeah. My takeaway from it is that like we ha- go through like tons of those types of tiny, like a very small version of that every single day where you trust yeah. something or you don't trust something. Right. For example, I did not trust the locker room and the fucking in the uh, <laughs> in the place where I went swimming with my kid. You know, I was like, this yeah. is gross. I have no I have no hostility towards the people that were in that locker room. I don't you know, I imagine that none of them have coronavirus because we live in a place with very low transmission right now. Um, you know, even though it's high right now, it's still relatively low. And also like, you know, I don't even really care if they have coronavirus or not, right? Like, it's just like a thing that happens to people. It's not like something where I mark them yeah. as unclean. Were they still wearing masks but, in the locker room, by the way? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Which, would, you know, obviously makes my fear even more irrational. You no, know? but, you know, it's like but, with water, you can see things. That there's just so much distrust, right? Yeah. Like, and so much uh, anxiety. And I don't think that people are going to rush back into life unless they've already been there and i think that like if i could think of one great uh like defense of places like florida or whatever where they just like fuck it let's just keep going it's kind of that you know where it's like all right well what is the value of a sense of normalcy in a 
you know, and like a lack of stress or I'm sure that people are still stressed, but, you know, like a different way of dealing with stress for society and for one's own personal health in the long term over, you know, the spread of COVID. I think I would still w- want to be someplace like this, you know, like in Berkeley where mm-hmm. people are very responsible. But I don't know. I think that people have to at least think of the trade-offs a little bit now, you know, like where yeah. like people really are suffering. Um a lot of the effects of this. Um, okay. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Florida because I was just talking to a nurse who didn't want to get vaccinated. So she has moved out of a Western state to Florida to work. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Cause she doesn't have to be. Not uncommon. Um, apparently. So yeah. Um, these kind of notions of like freedom and you know, what we want and, you know, kind of and I think for those people, obviously, they have lived through the worst of the pandemic, and every day that's been their job to take right. care of the people who are dying and sick. And um, and then, but then still to want this sense of, you know, I don't want to be regulated, and I want to <laughs> have this kind of liberty. I don't know. It's very confusing to me. I feel like if I lived in Berkeley, I would. I don't know. You might change. You're grateful, right? Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Because, like, the stuff that you do, like, eat it, like, you eat inside, for example, right? Yeah, I do in Korea. Or, like, did you eat inside in New York? I did a little bit in the summer in New York. Or you, and you went to, like, you would, like, sometimes go to bars and have a drink with friends, right? In the summer. Or people, people do in New York, right? For sure. That's, that's, like, not here, you know? Yeah. The only yeah. people you see doing it are like students and graduate students, you know, but they're mostly outside. And when they're inside, it's like gross, you know, it's like a locker room. <laughs> well, I mean, I would never go inside, but sometimes I walk by like, ew, look at those like 19 year olds <laughs> drinking together at that bar. That's so disgusting. Oh my God, know? I know. So everyone becomes judgy in that sort of way. So in that way, it's bad. I mean, I would just yeah. say like of all the places in the country, I imagine this is one of the worst in terms of that, you know? Yeah. In terms of that type of thing. And um, it's starting, I would just say it's starting to wear on me a little bit, you know, like, I'm just like, when are we going to be out of this? You know, like, it's like the rates here are still kind of low, you know, even with yeah. Omicron and everything like that. Like what's the off ramp? So I don't know. Um, but overall, I still, you know, I, I appreciate that, you know, we didn't have mass death here, which is obviously Seriously. the most important thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, moving on. First topic we want to talk about today is the price of burritos. <laughs> This article. I thought this article was funny. Um, So this is an article in the Times. It's called Fast Food Price Inflation, right? And it is about, and uh, the subtitle, like that's the URL. The type, the title is, how much are you willing to pay for a burrito? This is really good. This went uh, viral in a bad way. Well, it's really good headline writing, (laughs) I will just say, right? Um, Okay, so at a Chipotle in Custom Mesa, this is from the article, at a Chipotle in Custom Mesa, California, the price of a chicken burrito, nothing fancy, hold a guacamole about a year ago was $7.25. These days, that same burrito costs around $7.95, according to price data collected by analysts. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, a Shack Burger at Shake Shack used to cost $5.69, now it's $6.09. And in Oklahoma City, an order of 50 bone and wings from Windstop that cost $41.99 early last year is now $47.49 and 13% increase. Um, <laughs> and so the article is kind of about inflation, right? Like it's, but it's also kind of about like, you know, like what is happening with fast food restaurants and what is happening with the economy, what's happening with changes in labor. Now, like, what, like, so yeah. the way in which they sort of explain this is, is how, Tammy, like, how, how are they explaining, why, why are these prices up at these uh, fast food restaurants? Yeah. So it seems like it's, 
I don't know. I guess there are always a lot of guesses around what causes inflation. And this time it seems to be, first of all, supply chain issues that people aren't able to get what they need. Right. And then, or especially these sorts of uh, establishments. And then also maybe that people are, have a lot of money, right. That wages have gone up and that people are still benefiting a little bit from the economic stimulus, et cetera. Um, So that's my, those are the two things I've been seeing the most. Are those, is that what you've been seeing too as explainers? Yeah, yeah. It's like some has to do with like supply chain, right? And and then some of those they say like, oh, well, you know, like the cost of having the burrito person sit there and make your burrito is higher. So we have to charge a little bit yeah. more. And then some of it the is just like kind say. of random firing of algorithms, yeah. right? And so and that's a part where it's hard to even know if this is exactly. real or not, right? Where yeah. it's just like, okay, well, did their algorithm tell them to charge 10% more in Ann Arbor because like, you know, I don't know, like the students are back and like tell them or the students are gone even maybe, you know, and and then tell them to like uh, charge a little bit more in Oklahoma City right. at Wingstop because, uh, you know, I think there was a wing shortage. I, I do think there was a wing shortage at some point, right? I'm sure. Well, because <laughs> also like all the poultry workers have been so sick. Right, right. Like, so, anyway, there's this whole thing. But then, yeah, but because of what you were just saying about the algorithms and we had discussed a little bit on the show a few weeks ago, I think like how much is this inflation panic actually a thing? And, you know, like how do we make sure that it's not just an excuse for politicians to pursue austerity? So right. I think this is very tricky for the left to talk about. And yet there does seem to be something in the air where, you know, people are feeling a little bit of the impact of the rising prices, consumer prices. Right, I don't know right. if this, this article was lambasted because it was not the best illustration of like normal people experiencing normal price increases. Really? Um, in terms, you don't think so in terms of like uh, fast food price increases? I, I think, think it was just think because the that. two quote unquote, normal people quoted in the story, like the top was like a day trader who goes to Chicago uh, five day, five times a year. Oh, a data and scientist. Yeah. No, that, yeah. The, no, the top guy was a day trader. And then at the oh, bottom, okay. there was a data scientist. Anyway, but the day trader guy went viral because they were like, I can't believe this is the guy we care about, you know, <laughs> which oh. I think is like totally yeah, really. normal. Um, but this whole issue of like the Big Mac test about like, why do we use fast food prices as an index, like how much does this actually tell us about the experience of real people, I think is like a, a real question, but we keep doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so like what, one of the things that they talk about is that basically like, um, which I actually do think is quite interesting is that like, part of it is that like, uh, part of the reason why pe- these places figured out that they could charge more, that people are willing to like, let's say like my, my, desire is like i would like to eat a burrito bowl from chipotle right Mm -hmm. and i have an upward limit of what that is going to cost right and if it goes above that limit then i'm not going to get chipotle i'm going to get something else right like so this is like this hypothetical situation and that um this includes everything that goes into going to chipotle right so it includes driving to chipotle it includes Mm -hmm. if i have to pay for parking which you know i don't know anywhere where you would have to pay for parking to go to chipotle except for maybe la or something (laughs) like that (laughs) or san francisco like uh which obviously like uh that's going to influence how many chipotles they have where they are right like that sort of goes into it um but they figured out that like basically because these delivery apps that were being used so much right like uber eats and doordash were Mm -hmm. charging so much for delivery and people are still ordering these chipotles yeah maybe the price of what somebody was willing to pay for a chipotle was actually much higher you know 
And um, I think that this is probably true for a lot of young people. I think it's also true for a lot of people who are like, you know, like upper middle class, for example, or that's above, what I right? like, they don't really like think about worker. it very much. Exactly. Right. right. Like, if you're you know, paying kind of $12 for bring their lunch, you know? Right, right, right. And you're just like, you're like, let's say like, let's say it's like, that's why I actually think the day trader or whatever is like an okay example, because it's like a lot of people, <laughs> that's it's almost of- like a gig economy job. I'm sure the person is not necessarily making a lot of money day trading, right? And it's just, but it's somebody who probably does, is just like, I don't know, I'm just living alone. I'm a single guy. I'm going to just order Chipotle, you know, and if it's $14 or $16, it makes no difference really to me, right? Like, so that's like sort of the way that we're at, but like, I don't know. It's, um, I, I, I actually am thinking about it and just like, well, I guess like the, Maybe there is some like more price tolerance, for example, for fast food things because people just expect them to be cheap and then they don't look at the number, right? Like if you ate fast food every single day, you would just assume that you were saving money because you were eating cheaply. But even if like the actual nut price you were paying was like kind of high, it wouldn't register as being high. But I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the Big Mac test to me has always been a little bit weird. I mean, I get it. It's like the whole thing about in New York City, the relationship between Subway fare and a slice of pizza. Like, you know, there are these kinds of. Can you explain what the Big Mac test is to the Yeah, sure. So like, I think this was developed by The Economist, but just as kind of like a a measure of inflation or kind of like how it's felt by normal people, like how much does a Big Mac cost? And like, you know, it's ups and downs. Are, are a sort of convenient way about talking about like how prices feel to people. Um, but as you were just saying, I mean, in a way, like either the fast food orders, which can be pricey, like if you're talking about right. 15, 20 bucks for a meal, like that's not necessarily what like a minimum wage worker is going to eat, right? Like we're talking about kind of upper or middle class consumption, at least. Um, I think too, a lot of people, these sorts of meals are treats, you know, if you're working like right. in a low wage economy, you're not like going to this sort of thing every day. And so it would be, it seems like it would be more interesting to have like a, instead of a Big Mac test, like a test, like a gallon of milk test or something like that. But, <laughs> well, you know, they already I tried that. <laughs> but they already tried that. And I guess that's- yeah, My <laughs> friend, Evan McMurray-Santo got canceled. That's right. <laughs> We're always defending the people who un- get canceled un- on this unfairly, show. Unfairly, unfairly, yes. you know. He was just a correspondent oh, yeah. for the piece. Also, you know, it was interesting that they're- Do you want to remind people what that was? Oh yeah, that was a piece where like they, they, they did a piece about inflation and they're like, this family, my friend Evan did this. And Evan's piece was about like a- a couple who had like i think like 11 people living in their house or something like that it's like okay this is probably not your typical house you know but, um, <laughs> yeah i think like, he did not deserve to get yelled at for that i mean come on like he worked he's like a cnn correspondent you know most of the time you just show up <laughs> and you just stand there and you, the producer tells you what to do and you look serious and you say like you know well today in uh you know like whatever town they're in you know like Bucks County, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, I went and visited this family, you know, and then you like sort of ask them, so, you know, like, what was times like before, you know, I did this job. So I know, and I, that's how I know Evan, <laughs> I because he worked say. at the same job, right. you know, and so I'm very, very sensitive to people getting too bad at television <laughs> correspondence, because I'm just like, listen, a lot of times you're not even thinking about this stuff, you know, like the person says, okay, ask them this. And you're like, okay, uh, cool. You know, like, um, Great house that you you have here, you know, and you don't even know how many fucking people live in their house, you know. You're like, so, and then and then you because you're traveling all the time, you probably and you know a lot of times you're young, you don't have a family, yeah. you don't know what a normal grocery bill is. I don't even know what my grocery bill is these days, you know. Um, <laughs> like what what do I spend a week on groceries? I have no fucking clue, you know. And so like, uh, <laughs> you sit there and you're like, 
Anyway, this is all to say, please don't cancel. He's a very nice You're guy. Like, like, <laughs> poor Evan. It's like the <laughs> yeah, producer just happened to find like a Mormon family and like, what are you going to do? It's the last minute. You can't find yeah, anything. Yeah. And they bought all these like sort of, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like fighting one. I feel like that was like a perfect storm of bad things that happened to make that it was pretty uh, funny. possible. It was, it was funny. I will say, funny. I did I mean, laugh. For, unfortunately, so I, it was your friend, but yeah, I apologize <laughs> for laughing, but I did think it was funny. But I like that we're defending Evan, and we're also defending like the day trader that was lambasted. I know, I know, totally I know. This so is funny. what's called upward mobility, Tammy. You know, we've entered, we've entered the bourgeoisie. I don't you need know, to defend we, this day trader guy, but um, I appreciate your sensitivity. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I I wasn't defending the day trader. I was just defending his inclusion in it. Given because that, what I found, these sorts yeah. of orders. Yeah. Yeah, but then yeah. you know that might be based entirely on poker, because like you know I remember like when I used to hang out with a lot of t- poker players. This is how poker players generally oh think about God. things. You know, like we have no sense of money, right? And we don't value any money because you're like winning and losing thousands of dollars on poker hands. And so the idea that you would pay like $16 instead of $12 at Chipotle, mm. it like doesn't even register in your brain. You know, this is why it's like a gambling is a sickness, which is interesting given that, mm. you know, New York, everyone, everyone I know in New York is like sports gambling now and or sports betting now because, you know, it's legalized and they have yeah. all those bonuses where like you can like get $3,000 for free, I guess, oh, you know, really? just by like joining these apps. Yeah, they do I all see. these, they've done all these oh crazy gosh, promotions to try and hook as many people as possible. And like my sense of this is that most 95% of the people that I know are just going to who because they didn't gamble before. Right. They're going to like do this for a little bit, let's say like a month, and then they're going to forget the apps exist. Right. Because like if they wanted to bet on sports before, they would have bet on sports before. You know, like it's not like it was impossible to do. It's just much easier to do now. And then about 5% of them are going to be degenerate gamblers. <laughs> that's, that's my sense of it. And then when they become degenerate gamblers, they will sort of function like these people who just kind of like go and they, you know, like they're all single. They don't really think about it very much. And I then, see. you know, like they buy a bunch of fast food because that's all they eat. But that's what the day trader reminded me of. I don't Yeah. Know and I think that's like definitely a population. And the delivery thing, I, I've been thinking about it a lot just because like in Korea, obviously people get they seem to get delivery much more than in the U.S. and for like extremely small amounts. Like you see, but like jajangmyeon, you mean? Do they still bring like, like all that's the like, yeah, like there's that old school jajangmyeon type stuff. But like anything at any moment can be delivered, basically. And you sometimes right. see these guys. Like I was um, doing some work at a cafe the other day, and a delivery guy was coming to pick up like literally like one latte to like go deliver to someone, like oh, yeah, stuff they do that like with that. Starbucks. And it's, it just yeah. yeah, it just blows your mind. And so when you're talking about like delivering like one Chipotle burrito or something, I'm just like. People are risking their lives for a few dollars in tips and like some really like low amount of commission they're getting through these apps for like a small, small order. And I just, that's the kind of stuff that makes me crazy about, or is this how we're going to live like after the pandemic? And, you know, can can I tell you a counter of something I saw on, on, on TikTok? Sure. Okay. There's this (laughs) dude who lives in a tiny house in Colorado on TikTok Mm -hmm. that I watch all his videos now. He's like this very sweet white guy who's like, uh, I don't know. He's somehow, it seems like he's like, you know, neurodivergent in some sort of way because like, uh, but he, um, he talks about, uh, he's very nice, you know, like somebody was like, oh, you're, you, you, you seem like a liberal. And he's like, yo, racism is bad. You know, everyone is a person and that's just (laughs) what I believe. And if you don't like it, 
then don't leave comments on my TikTok. You know, she's like, yeah, fuck that guy. You know, <laughs> if you don't like it, <laughs> stop disrupting our community of people who watch this guy's TikToks all the time. Anyway, he lives in this tiny house okay. and he is has that, a Tesla. Is that like a political? Th- oh, okay. Tesla. Yeah, yeah. A tiny house is like right. a tiny house, right? And it's he Tesla, lives in, a tiny like in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. And uh-huh. then he was explaining how all he does is DoorDash, right? This is his only job. And DoorDash has allowed him to afford a tiny house and a Tesla. And that's he DoorDashes in his Tesla? Yeah. Yeah. And he's going to get oh, wow. he's gonna get solar panels soon. And then he won't have to pay for gas with Tesla, you know? This guy <laughs> his, is special. His plan, his plan is to just go completely out the grid. But he said that the gig economy has really worked out for him. And I believe it. it sounds like for this guy it has. There? I know, I know. I think that's for where sure, it works there out. There are people like that. If you have no <laughs> family, like... you have no responsibilities, you're living in a tiny house in the middle of Colorado by yourself, and you drive around a Tesla, like it's probably pretty good. You know, I really want to um... see the face of his neighbor who orders like a latte and gets it <laughs> delivered by a dude in a Tesla. <laughs> It's just like, I've, what I've is seen happening some, to our economy? Yeah, I've seen I've seen some I've seen some Tesla delivery people um, here in the Bay Area. And, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, and some That's Uber stuff too. But to I, try, I also don't take Uber anymore either. So yeah, you know, my life is basically yeah, my life is basically shut down. I don't do anything. You've I the house, obeyed like, the lockdowns or quasi lockdowns. I think more than anyone I know. Oh yeah, I mean you know I talk you a big see very game, few people, but like I don't yeah. like I don't even like bring people in the house still you know and it's not actually because like objectively i'm afraid of coronavirus it's just that i'm so lazy socially that i basically just default to like i just try and figure out what is the thing that will make everyone the most comfortable and then i just dictate it you know it's like we're just going to do this because i don't want to hear anyone's like complaints you know and then so then that baseline is always outside it's a miracle we saw you at the ttsg picnic in the bay area over the summer i know i know well <laughs> that, that was, was like outside that was outside yeah, yeah that was outside um okay so the thing that we wanted to actually wow the, the thing that we were sort of ramping up to talk about here was that like you know all these it's it's a very interesting right now because i was thinking about it because i was looking at um stock market today and it's just like it's it's yeah. done or like or although it bounced back today did it yeah, crazily. I was say it came yeah, up yeah, yeah. but bit, right? yeah. that's like things are still way down so like amazon stock at some point was like close to four thousand dollars above four thousand dollars actually um i think it got up to like forty five hundred dollars forty seven hundred dollars oh right now it's like twenty seven hundred dollars so it's lost like huge amount of its value netflix dropped 25 percent in a day Peloton is like a meme at this point because it's so crashed out, right? Um, every single one of these tech stocks that was supposed to be the future, like all these things that were supposed to yeah. be like, all right, this is what the new mm-hmm. future is and everyone is vesting in them. Like Zoom, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roku went way up, right? Because people are like, oh, well, people are just going to be at home watching streaming stuff. Yeah, yeah. These things have all been wiped out in the past week. And I wonder if it means anything, you know, like um, it's interesting because like you would expect that to happen when things are sort of uh, um, coming back. Right. And when like last summer, for example, when it felt like we were done with this and everyone was going to get vaccinated and nobody was going to get coronavirus again. But, you know, like we're in a pretty bad part of the pandemic still in terms of at least cases. Right. Mm -hmm. And um this has happened and what it seems like at least in terms of netflix and some of these other places is that there is a ceiling to like the amount of adoption right the netflix thing was that it seemed like their growth is really going to slow down from here on out they can't really find people um i don't know like it's kind of made me hopeful in some sort of ways (laughs) 
that's funny. Because I was like, fuck these companies. You know, I don't want I a know. world where they like right. have like endless growth, you know, and like right. it's and good that. Right, and your child it... is just in front of Netflix 24 hours. Right, away. right. Like switching between <laughs> Disney Plus and Netflix yeah, all the time. Yeah, I mean, that is grim. Um, the Amazon thing, maybe it seems like something different because maybe that's more attached to the supply chain stuff and right, right. the lockdown in China. But yeah, I agree with you in the kind of like Peloton, Netflix. I have to say, though, I don't have a Peloton machine because obviously my living room is like very tiny, but I use the Peloton online exercise videos every day. How are they? What do you amazing. do? You like, you like, what do you have an exercise bike? No, you, so you don't need the bike. Like, it's detached from What do you that. do? Like, you, like, yoga, sit on a chair and, like, training. move your legs around or no, something? You oh, you they have other things. Was, oh, my God, was, Jay. Do not simulate the existence are, of a bicycle. Are you, are you, like, you, like, put your real bike down, oh you put God, the kickstand down, and then you just start, you just start battling in place. Oh, um, um, I didn't realize that Peloton had expanded to all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, I just found out a few months ago and it's amazing but so uh, do you I have to pay for that bit, it's like 12 bucks a month oh that's not that bad that's yeah. cheaper than a gym and actually my health insurance gave it to me free now anyway but um oh really i was just why did i bring that up oh because i i, I felt very weird at the beginning kind of supporting peloton because it seems like a horrible company but right yeah i mean i don't so how do you because i think you're more much more familiar with this stuff than i am how does like for a newish company like Peloton, how does the up and down in the market relate to like the patterns in venture capital investment? Because uh, there are also these bubbles that are coming, right? Right. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, I imagine it matters some, but I think in some ways, like people just bet long, enough people bet long term on so? like what okay. they think the future will be. Um, and they speculate and they see value, for example, right? So if Peloton crashes down or something like that, then they can come in and, you know, do cut better deals with these types of companies than they might have before with like more types of like outs for them or more types of things. I don't know though. I'm not a VC person, but I don't think that it will have that big of an effect. And I think it'll probably mm -hmm. be pretty temporary, but I do think that like, you know, for a moment, it's like a, it is at least some sort of speed bump in terms of these yeah. companies sort of taking over all of our lives. And it's like something I think about all the time now, you know, we talked about it in terms of like Twitter and Marjorie Taylor green last week, but like, I don't know. I think about it broadly, right? Like, it's just like, like these places getting all this money, these places sort of becoming these kind of state, state-like things in themselves, especially Amazon, right? Like Amazon certainly For owns sure. the, almost, almost the entirety of the internet, but um, it's not really just that. It's also just kind of culturally, right? Like mm -hmm. what happens when like everybody just thinks that it's, that gyms are, I don't like going to gyms, so this doesn't bother me personally, but like, you know, exercise is all like this sort of virtual thing, you know, and that you do it in the sort of comfort of your home, own home and you can jump on and you do a class or whatever. I don't know. Do you enjoy the experience of doing like a Peloton class <laughs> with other people? No, I mean, I really, I miss, <clears throat> I miss my, I used to go to a yoga studio near my house in Brooklyn for like almost a decade and it closed during the pandemic because I couldn't get a PPP. Why can so they get that, a PPP? It just didn't, it was one of the small businesses that got denied. Oh, really? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think there are a lot of them. And yeah, so comparing that, no, of course, like I miss people and being with people. And yeah, I don't want to live in a world where I'm just looking at my computer. It's very sad to me. I know. That's basically my life. And I think that I'm going through like some sort of uh, 
Like I, I, you know, like because I'm an immigrant and because I'm Korean, like I have, and I was raised in an immigrant, not to essentialize, but you know what I'm talking about here. Um, (laughs) I have, I'm very out of touch with my general feelings, you know, and just like, I don't know, it's all the same. It's fine. I'll just power through this. But I do worry about this, you know, because I do just sit in my basement all the time. <laughs> so Were you much it. more out and about? Because I feel like I've, I've spent much more time with you during the pandemic than before. So how yeah. different is this from your regular life? I sort of always thought you were online a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that different. But before I would before I would go to a coffee shop once a week, yeah. you know, and then tweet angry things at people. And now I just do it exclusively at home. Um, but even that type of difference is actually, you know, like it's actually somewhat yeah. um, meaningful. And the thing that uh, I don't know, it's it's weird because I think there's like these extremes that go on, too. And the re- only reason I know this is because I try and book um, time in the uh, in or I try and book campgrounds in California. It's oh, fucking yeah. impossible. That's what They're I all heard. stacked yeah. up for like six months. It's not like I get it for Yosemite, you know, but like I'm talking about like fucking bullshit, like local parks, you know, and, and campgrounds. Which are in you California through are the state system or the federal system? Both state, really? local and I, federal system. They're all fucking When my mom and I were blood. camping last summer, we, we stayed in really random places, but they did have some room. <laughs> Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to teach But me maybe there. <laughs> but yeah, to I your point, like, I there's... Like, shit. So, like, people are yeah. either, like, living in Tahoe, for example, right? And I'm just talking about rich yeah. people here. Yeah, yeah. Or they're, like, living in Sea Ranch, right? And they're sort What's of that? spending a lot... Sea Ranch is, like, this uh, community of houses in Sonoma County, I think it is. Or maybe it's one of... It's, it's about two hours north of Berkeley. And um, you have to... The drive there is horrific. But it's right on the coast, and it's this planned mm-hmm. community, and all the houses look the same. They're these sort of like two-story flat. Uh, the houses look really cool, you know. Really? Like it, okay. Yeah, yeah. And the community looks cool because the houses all look the same. Is it like a know? Levittown kind of like post-war like? No, it's of, okay. more like uh, art installation type oh, of I thing, see. Ooh, you know. Okay. And but it's the cool. houses there. <laughs> it it used to all be like kind of lawyers from Berkeley and San Francisco would go up there and have second houses, and now those lawyers are being bought out by. Um, tech people who are paying it's, it was like the highest interesting rate of increase of zip code of real estate increase i think in the country was like this place called sea ranch you know and so i think there's just these extremes now that were happening before for wealthy people but now are much more intense you know and i think that it's basically just you're sitting in front of your computer or you're outside all the time mm-hmm. if you can afford to do that you know and then yeah, yeah. the other side of it is that you just sit in front of your computer all the time it seems very unhealthy to me but um you know what are we going to do about it at this point um okay just celebrate netflix and peloton's demise I know. I know. I've been watching more television in an attempt to get more into television. And I did like Station Eleven a lot, but I got to say all the other shows are bad. You're not watching (laughs) Korean dramas anymore? (laughs) No, I haven't watched one of those in a while. I should because I think like, I don't know. I think it's actually improving my Korean. You know, like I could understand more. I could think about it language more. But um, for sure. But I don't know. We got to start our kid in Korean language classes soon. I think she's going to, I think she's going to start this year. Oh, you're going to teach your kid Korean? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we have to. Why? To keep up with like the cultural. Oh my gosh. Our cultural neighbors, you know. 
No, I thought oh. your parents would be like, why are you teaching your kid Korean? No, my parents don't, don't care. My parents don't care. Yeah, they would be care. like, you should teach I'm talking about my neighbors, <laughs> you know? Like all the other Hoppa kids, you know, where their kids are like in Mandarin classes since they were like two years old or something nice. like that. Like, Mandarin oh is way more useful than Korean. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I know? like Korean, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we might, we might, we might get in there at some point. You know, we have a lot of cultural soft power. You know, it might be that like that's you know, true. We seem knowing to be about a, BTS and being on the able rise to be right like Sarang is more important than or whatever they say. What did I say? I don't know. I don't know anything about BTS. I really never <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah. I'm glad <laughs> we're the same. Okay. Second, let's talk about the second thing that we we're going to talk about, which is uh, affirmative action. So I actually <laughs> yeah, have some questions segue. for you as a lawyer. You know. Um, but just this morning, like uh, the Supreme Court decided to hear this case, yeah. right? Students for fair admission against Harvard, which yeah. uh, was kind of up in the air. But then you think about it, it's like, why was it up in the air? I don't know. It seems like they were always going to rule on this, right? Now, the fate of this to me seems quite obvious in the same way that it seemed obvious to me before, um, you know, in 2019 when I did most of my reporting on this case, which is that, look, the court is a court, you know? At that time, it was, uh, this was before Coney Barrett. So it was like, um, what, 5-4, right? Now it's 6-3. They're going to decide how they're going to yeah. decide. Like it's affirmative action college campuses is going to be affected in some sort of way. The question is really just how broadly the, co the court is going to apply this. So the first question I have is just like a functional one, which is like, what does it mean when the court is like, hey, we're going to hear this like what's a timeline at that point is it just like whenever they decide they're going to do it or or is it going to be something that's imminent yeah well it seems like it's been accepted for next term right it's, which means we can basically ex i think expect a decision you know probably sometime in the spring right. um the the justices will make a decision about which is essentially a political decision like most of their decisions about all when, their decisions yes. all their decisions yeah. about when <laughs> in the term it should be heard right. and you know, how it will be presented, who will write the decision. So they're figuring all of that out now, presumably. But um, yeah, I mean, do you, so you think for sure this is just like I think a it's done over. deal. Yeah, it's yeah. over. I mean, like what, what would convince <clears throat> them otherwise, right? Like there's no, there's no heterodox, there's no heterodox position on this that a judge can take, right? Mm -hmm. This is not like Brett Kavanaugh screaming about the NCAA, <laughs> you know, like we, yeah. we're not going to accept, we're not, we can't expect sort of what would be a progressive p opinion coming out of this based on some sort of like interpretation of the constitution or something like that, right? Like this is going to be basically, um, you know, the, what, what's been happening for the past 20 years with affirmative action. No, I'm sorry, past 40 years with affirmative action, which is that each of these court decisions narrows it down yeah, a little sure. bit more, right? So the first one, Baki versus, uh, or, you know, Regents University of, of California. University of California versus Baki. Yeah. Basically, this, you can't do quotas anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, but here's what you can do, right? You, and then every other one just kind of makes it narrow and narrower and narrower to the point where we get to Abigail Fisher and, you know, the court is going to get rid of, is going to decide at that point. And then, you know, I think it was Roberts or something like that has a change of heart at the end, right? And then that's around the time, like a little bit before Barely that, that's survived. when you have like Sandra Day O'Connor saying like, well, in 25 years, we're not going to need affirmative right. action anymore. So like, you know, like, let's just keep it going for a little bit longer. And this seems like the reckoning of all of that momentum, right? Like yeah. this is, this is going to sort of get rid of it. And like, I don't know, it's a, I think it's an interesting time to think about this sort of stuff because like my sense of all of this is that like, there's two issues, right? The first issue is whether or not Harvard was discriminating against Asian students or whether or not these elite colleges uh, discriminate against 
elite or these elite colleges discriminate against Asian Africans, to which I think the answer is very easy, which I think that they absolutely do. You know, like by any definition of discrimination, they discriminate. Like if you look at the evidence, if you look at, you know, the way in which Harvard is arguing these things or Harvard's lawyers, it's just like, like, come on, you know, like you take one step back, you're like, all right, you know, they're doing this, right? Um, and this is having part- to do with the whole like similarly qualified and then discounting for Asians, right, basically. Yeah, it's like all this sort of stuff. I mean, like I was—I went back over the article I had written about yeah. it, and like some of the stuff is just so like blatant. Like, so for example, they have this thing where it's like it's called sparse country, right? And it's like all these places where like uh, people generally don't go to Harvard. So it's like Nevada, for example, mm-hmm. is one is sparse country, or Iowa, I think, is considered sparse country, or Alaska, obviously, Wyoming, right? Uh-huh. And in these places, right, the 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 way that they get students to think of Harvard is they recruit them like they send them like uh, hey here's an invitation to apply to Harvard which you know if you go to like collegiate high school or if you go to Stuyvesant like you're just like you know I already know about Harvard but that's not true of people who live in these places right like they don't actually think it's on there like we know you're excellent like give right right a thought sort of thing right and they used to base this entirely on the PSAT right Uh like on how students in their sophomore junior year would do on the PSAT exam and the levels that they have for these students is that, like, if you're black then you and you get over an 1100 on the PSAT, you get an invitation to go to, to apply to Harvard. If you're white, it's like 1300, I think. And if you're Asian, it's 1380. Right. And so, like, basically, you're just like, OK, well. And so, like, during the trial, they actually one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs asked the head of Harvard's admission, like, you know, like, what, can you explain this? You know, like if why do you have racial distinction for something that's supposed to be geographic? Right. And he basically said, well, uh, and I think I'm quoting him exactly at this point, right, which is just like um, some students in these places have only been there for a couple years, right? Which is basically just saying all the Asian people are like, you know, new immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. They don't really count as being like from Arkansas or from Mm -hmm. Wyoming or from Nevada. Wow. Like even if they live in fucking Las Vegas or something like that, right? I think I've forgotten about that. Yeah. And that's so that's like racist, right? Like there's like no other way to describe that than just being like, like at the very worst, it's like xenophobic. And And there wasn't something similar for, say, black immigrants or Latino immigrants. No, it's just done by race. That's the problem. Right. And so um, and then like all the sort of, you know, like the 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 big thing in that case was like basically the uh, quote unquote personal rating. Right. And Harvard and the big debate was whether or not Harvard was making the personal ratings lower or whether it was the recommendations from the guidance counselors and the teachers that were making the personal writing lower and harvard's contention was basically hey look this isn't our problem it's these teachers and guidance counselors they keep giving lower recommendations and so then people would ask well why do you use them you know it seems like if you believe in all these things about systemic racism and everything like that and you adjust for every single difference in every other way right that uh happens racially when trying to balance your class that just sort of saying yeah but i guess the teachers are right about these boring Asian grind students, right? Or the guidance counselors are right and we should just take their word for it. I think that just seems weird. Of course, Harvard, of course, has no answer for that, right? Like that's like, you know, those sorts of contradictions loom pretty large and that if, they're, if it was about any other group of people, then obviously it would be struck down. And so then you can conclude, I think, very comfortably that Harvard is like kind of engaging in a type of, you know, racial balancing that is against the law, first of all, but also is just pretty racist and discriminatory towards Asian students, right? Like we can we can say all of that pretty comfortably. But the yeah. thing that comes up is just like, okay, well then what do we do about it? You know? 
Like, what does that mean? Does that change the way that we should think about affirmative action? Which I'm not sure that it's, you know, like that's what well, I'm sort you, of struggling with. So so the, 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 the case that was accepted is now like a consolidated case with the Harvard case and a UNC case. UNC case, yeah, um, which is which the is same people right? behind it, right? Yeah, yeah this, but, but also at a public university and some of the reasoning in the Supreme Court cases over the years had, I mean, well, most, actually all of the landmark cases are against public universities, right? We had Baki, we had Grota versus Bollinger at Michigan, and we had Abigail Fisher at University of Texas. In Texas, yep, interesting. yeah. Interesting. And, you know, and because the 14th Amendment equal protection basically applies to the public, not to the right. private sector, right? So, um, so like the legal questions are slightly different in the UNC case, but essentially now they're basically the same case. I'm curious from your reporting whether you feel differently about how a public university should act versus a super elite private university like Harvard. Is the thinking any different? Oh yeah, that's a huh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that basically some of these places like University of Michigan and University of Virginia and University of North Carolina at Berkeley, they basically operate as elite elite, institutions, right? And so now the fact that they are not by definition and that they are public universities obviously is very different, right? Yeah. But, um, but, uh, and I think, I imagine that's why they included UNC in all this so that the decision couldn't be just narrowly applied to Harvard, right? right? Like the second that you sort of bring in a state university, especially like a big one with like a lot of- uh, you know, in a state that like is pretty purple, but also is like, you know, this is like one of the most famous institution or education institutions in the, in the United States, University of North Carolina. Um, yeah. And it's Chapel seen as Hill one of the elite. Right. But, right, right. But, it'll be a broader, elite but it'll be a broader right. decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that you can sort of make it whatever you want. Right. And so I think in that sense, that's why they did it. Now, yeah. should the standards be different? Yeah, I think so, you know, but I also think that like, um, you know, the diversity questions in bigger schools are not the same as they are, or at least as high pressured as they are at a place where the undergraduate student body is like 4,000 kids or 2,000 kids or 3,000 kids. Um, And I also think that like, they can sort of do more because they have a lower or they have like a they have a broader range of types of students that they can let in because mm-hmm. it's not so like it's not quite as like hyper 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 competitive where yeah. like everyone's SAT score now is compared against one another's you know um but legally I don't know I mean legally I just think that they should basically tax all these private institutions into the grave you know and they should <laughs> not, they should try and loosen the power that they have and um yeah. And, but that's a little bit of a separate question on whether the affirmative action question should happen. But either way, it will apply to both of them, right? Like it'll, it's not like yeah, Columbia University doesn't get to, gets to do different things. And it's right. not like Pomona College in the state of California gets to do like a type of affirmative action that the UC, that UC Berkeley doesn't, right? It's a statewide, um, it's a statewide ban. So um, I don't know. It's, well, what do you uh, think about, so, so the, the question that you say is very clear about the discrimination like right. is that based on you so do, do you have to accept the legitimacy of test scores first of all as a criterion for admission but also as a sort of you know as a distinguishing something that actually distinguishes you know candidates who are of qual- their qualifications right do you have to accept that in order for you for the discrimination to be clear so were it not for the test scores and other sort of quantifiable data based on psat etc would the discrimination question be as 
open and shut as you think it is. No, if you had like no metrics, then obviously you could just do whatever you wanted, right? Or if you had fewer metrics, then you could do more of what you wanted. Or like so, more qualitative and less quantitative, I guess. I mean, I guess right, you, would you still right. have the problem around the the sort of like, you know, Asian automaton issue? Like that's not necessarily yeah, a think, quant question. But I, I mean, I think that I think that sort of going to qualitative admissions, right, in a system where kids apply to 30 different schools and every year schools break the record for the number of applicants that apply to their school. I think it's a pipe dream and I think it's silly. Mm -hmm. You know, like the idea that you could really know these kids from these essays that a lot of them didn't even write and got coached through. Right. You know, like the idea, the, the idea that like your system of values, which these kids are all gaming, Right. Like they know what stories they want. They have counselors and shit like that who tell them what type of stories that they want. Like uh, I remember like one of the students at mm-hmm. Harvard who was this Asian uh, woman from San Francisco who had gone to Lowell. Her parents, I think, worked in a restaurant or something like very working class, you know, um, you know, like her guidance counselor said, nobody wants to hear like another Asian immigrant essay story. So don't do that, you know, which is like that person might have been giving this person bad advice, but they're basing it off something, you know, like it's like, and it's like, it shows that these places are gaming these places for what they want, which is a type of like, you know, like trauma based, like identity story of, of overcoming and everything like that. And I, <laughs> I think all that is bullshit when you look at the actual, numbers on uh, economic figures of the people who go to these schools, you know, um, I looked it up today so I can like, kind of like, uh, give it to you, but it's basically like, I think it was like, I, I mostly looked at my, the school that I went to Bowdoin, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like Bowdoin is like very diverse now and it's very like up on its own diversity. But then you look at the actual like income data for like the people who go there and it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's fucking crazy. It's like, okay, so let me see if I could find this right now. Um, do you think it was uh, that way when you were there? I mean, it's obviously been getting worse. The income stuff, yeah. But like, okay. so, okay. So in 1988, Bowdoin had 7.5 kids who are people of color, right? And now it's 35.1%, which is a lot for a school in Maine, right? But now, right now, 20% of Bowdoin students come from uh, families who make more than $630,000 a year. Wow. 20%, yeah. 70% of the kids at Bowdoin come from the top 20% of income earners in the country and 3.8 come from the bottom percent, you know, percent. Like, so like you have a more diverse school. It's just rich kids, right? It's Do they diverse... dis- and they don't disaggregate that by, by race though. So no, no, because what, what they would is. do if they found that, right. if they did that right. is that they I would find would that like <laughs> many of the poor kids in the bottom 20% are just dirt poor white kids from the state of Maine, you know, because they do get a little bit of a bonus because they want to have some Maine kids right. there. I bet like yeah, that's yeah. most of the, of the poor kids at Bowdoin. And you right? think like, all the rich I people of color are like i don't know sultan's children from god knows what not all but you know but they might be middle (laughs) class you know like their parents might both work for the government or their parents might work uh or their parents might be doctors in their upper middle class right they're in that sort of like 20th percentile right like but i don't i I don't think that like it's like the 3.8 kids are all the poor kids you know like the poor black and latino kids like I, i doubt that that's true harvard is the same 15 percent of harvard kids go make more than uh their parents families make more than 630 thousand dollars a year 4.5 percent come from the bottom 20 percent and then all these elite institutions like state institutions are the same right like um 2.8 of students at the universe percent of students at the university of virginia for example make are coming from the bottom 20 percent, which is lower than harvard you know 
uh, lower than yeah. Bowdoin, right? Um, University of North school. Carolina, it's like three point eight percent. So the so the wow. percentage of of poor students, right, of coming from the bottom twenty percentile at Bowdoin is the exact same that it is at Bowdoin at the University of North Carolina is the exact same as it is at Bowdoin, right? So like that, that's that's what like the that's like the actual demographics in my mind of these places, right? And so it's very hard for me to like actually care that much about what the racial balance of these places are, you know, like, um, like who, like, I think that for the students, it makes it more comfortable for them to be at these schools to have Mm -hmm. more faces that quote, look like them, but that's all we're talking about here. And we should just be honest that that's what we're talking about. Right. Um, we are not talking about like, you know, giving a whole bunch of kids from like the lower, lower income brackets in America a better chance at like a better life through these educations because they're not there, you know? <laughs> I mean, like... does, so does that mean that like the elite, so at the most elite public and private institutions in the country, like they have committed and recommitted double down on this thinking that they are only there to serve the elite and to basically manufacture the next, you know, elite leaders of America. Right? Yeah, but like, like the, but being like, right, yeah, right, right. And being yeah, like, so... Go ahead. I think that's yeah. ba- bad. I mean, like, I agree with you that I don't think that's their purpose. And I think they're actually violating their civic duty. Okay. But so it but if we bracket those, like how will the affirmative action, the coming affirmative action apocalypse essentially affect um, middle tier and lower tier schools? Do you think it, they will have an effect as well? No, because we, those schools don't really do affirmative action. Yeah. You know, like Cal State Merced or Cal State East Bay, for example. Right. Like, you know, they let in basically they everyone who applies in, right. and like yeah. they don't they don't need to do there's, there's not the competition yeah. for spots. So affirmative action is really for, only a question for these elite institutions whose essential purpose is like really problematic. Right. And like the other institutions just reflect the surrounding areas right Right. so for example like in kansas or nebraska like yeah these schools are going to be mostly white you know these mid and lower tier schools but that you know like is there like a ton of like people of color who are dying to get into these schools no right like um uh just like at uh you know like cal state east bay it's very diverse because it serves a diverse community around it you know and so like you know affirmative action is like not really an issue at those types of places because they're basically commuter schools that serve the community right and so i don't think so like i don't think it'll have any effect on any of these places except for um places that will be able to come up with other ways to bring in diversity anyway you know so i think in the end it's going to have very little Mm. effect you know practical effect i just think that is a lot more stuff is going to be illegal you know and i think that um and i but i also don't think that the court is going to basically say okay now affirmative action and race-based preferences and everything across the country are over like right like that would be Mm. like that would be kind of like a crazy overstep for them to do. I don't think that they would actually do but that. But what's so. even left? I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I, there's not that much. Left. I mean, Harvard is basically saying their defense has always been like, we're applying this stuff in a very flexible manner. Like, right, it's right. not mechanical. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I think like if the court crashes down on this further, I don't know what schools will feel like they can do. Right, right. Like Berkeley and UCLA, you know, like the open secret at these place, two places, which are like, you know, obviously the places that are under the most pressure for diversity mm-hmm. type of stuff yeah. in the UC system. Everyone knows that they're doing this, like racial preference stuff, you know. Everyone just does it anyway, even though it's illegal, right? And nobody really has a problem with it, you know. But like uh, the fact that they're like, because it's illegal, they're not doing any like diversity in it. Like, come on, you know. Like, you think they are still doing? That. Because didn't like, well, I, I I can't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember reading about how 
like say at the law schools and stuff like they it, right. like these decisions basically eviscerated like the black at the beginning yeah initially. and now it's like crawled back yeah yeah okay. yeah so, so they found there ways to right okay. so there might be effects like that where yeah. at the, for the very beginning there's a crash right and then uh-huh. and then the, the places figure out ways to sort of get around it and like mm. in some ways it's like almost like a better system in some ways as long as like the ways that they get around it are not like crazy you know mm. but like mostly like i think it's fine I don't know. Do you want like uh, the last interesting thing that I found out through all this research that I was doing today is that like the weird thing is that like, okay, so Berkeley and UCLA are in a state that does not allow affirmative action. Right. Right. Um, And both those schools have uh, are. okay. so Cal, only three point eight percent of the students come from the top one percent and seven percent come from the undergrad. Twenty percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is way higher, uh, way different distribution than uh, some of these other elite public UNC universities, or right? Virginia, yeah. yeah, or the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, UCLA is basically the same. So those two schools without affirmative action have been able to actually let in way more kids who are, um, you know, like from like what we, I think every, I think the bottom 20% is something like $25,000 a year household income or something like mm-hmm. that, which is basically yeah. the poverty line, right? So if yeah, you're living below that, then you're like low, living way below the poverty line. Yeah. And they've been able to let in more students and it's not because like california is poorer than north carolina or something like that right like it's just that i think they've made it more of a priority and they're doing it as a priority now Mm. there's no trade-off i don't think really between like saying oh because they don't have to think about all this race stuff they can do economics like i don't think that's true you know i just think that they're doing a better job with that sort of stuff which is you know interesting part of it um yeah so is that different so that's different than when there was affirmative action um the percentages of poor people that they let no you know what i think it really is is that i think it's a lot of it is a community college that's what uh, i was wondering the feeder programs right which has been expanded greatly yeah in the past uh five years um or like eight years i think they've expanded it quite great like i get the uc system a lot of shit but i think in the end they're like better than the other places you know because of the because of the community (laughs) because of the only because of the community college system um I still think they need to like make UCLA 15 times bigger than it is or something like that, but like, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's it's not really in the end a very big deal, but um So when yeah, do you I think it'll like how are you forecasting this in terms of like what it means for Asian America? <laughs> Your favorite I don't topic. know, man. I think it's going to be bad. Um it's like from, the whole like obviously the whole shape of this litigation strategy is really heartbreaking and cynical and just, right, you know, divisive. Right. Um yeah, and it's I don't know. I find it I find myself stuck between two truths. So the first is that like, you know, these places are discriminating and discrimination is bad. Like I think we can just cut it off there. I don't care about the pragmatic sense. I just talked about you know, sometimes it's okay to just say this thing that's happening is bad, you know? And it's bad that they're mischaracterizing a lot of these applicants as all being rich test test prepping grinds when they're not. You know, like mm-hmm. that's bad. I think that's bad. Um and I think it's bad that these colleges are like sort of, and this is more from like just a moral disgust standpoint that these places like wrap themselves in all this sort of like clothing of like diversity talk and social justice yeah. and they're disgusting institutions, you know, it's like how like the private schools all now like do like, like if you go to a private school, I have not been, but my friend went to for his uh-huh. kid and, um, you know, the private school in the Bay Area, all their like uh, orientation for parents, you know, it's like all just like 
this like equity shit yeah and identity stuff and being like you know we want to foster it's just like your school costs fifty six thousand dollars a year and you're taking all this money you know like it's like it's disgusting you know it's disgusting to me so i'm disgusted at these schools like harvard you know like find them disgusting um but at the same time it's like you know like there's obviously going to be a response from the public which is that like asian parents took away affirmative action you know, and um, they're going to, they're selfish okay. and they want to, and it's hard to counter that because there's part of that that's true, right? Like there is not much buy-in to like the idea of a, of like a, you know, multi-ethnic and like uh, um, multi-class type of thing. Like these parents just want their kids to go to the elite schools, you know? Um, and there's not really like a conversation about, well, what's best for society as a whole? You know, like, is it best for us to perpetuate these types of cram and shitty type of like, you know, hyper competitiveness or should we do something else? And like, these are not really questions that are being asked a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, and, but I don't blame the Asian parents for that. You know, I blame uh, politicians. I blame the media society for never even presenting that as an option. You know, like mm. um, we never talk about that. We just think about it as a fucking zero sum game. Yeah. Um, because I guess it is. But then at the same time, it's just <laughs> like, well, we don't have to play the zero sum game. And that's the conversation that people don't really seem to have. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about it in terms of like Asian people? Yeah, I think I haven't obviously haven't studied this stuff as much as you do, but it does seem. I don't know. It just seems like one of it's one of the big issues that does make Asians this kind of like wedge population, which is an old issue and, you know, seems like it's intensifying. Um, Yeah. And I, I don't know, in a way it kind of makes me nostalgic for quotas. For what? (laughs) Quotas. (laughs) Oh yeah. Cleaner. Like you could have race quotas and within that like class distribution quotas. And it just seems like that's more honest and good. And then like the Asians who lose out would be like, yeah, we lost out, but so did these other people. I know. I know. I'm fine with the quota system. (laughs) It would be way better because people would stop lying about shit. It's so clear, right? And like now it sucks because everybody has to lie about everything, you know? And like, look, there's still quota systems, right? Like Harvard's basic distribution of race is the same every single year. It's not because they like holistically look at everybody and they're like, oh my God, we did it again. It looks exactly How the weird. same as last year. How weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, you know, like, uh, you know, like Mike Shen from Flushing didn't make the cut, you know, but like, you know, like we, we I swear to God, we didn't even look at his last name or his race, you know, like we just doing this all holistically. And you read his essay about, you know, like uh, volunteering for like a state senator, you know, and, and working with like the, you know, the Queen. Means Chinatown organization or something like that. We weren't really moved by it, you know? It's just like, but, you know, we weren't trying to balance anything. No, 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 right? So the lying part of it, I think, is actually quite bad, you know? And I think it's one of these things where it's like, uh, the more you lie about this stuff, I think, like, the worse position you're in and the less defensive, the less defensible what you're doing becomes. And I think that's basically where we got to with elite institutions and affirmative action. Like nobody was willing to be honest about what they were doing because they couldn't be because the law is so fucked up, you know, Mm -hmm. like they want to do a quota system because they should do a quota system. They can't do a quota system. They can't weigh race in this way, this way, and this way, but they still want to, because it's the only way that they're going to get the class demographics that they want. Right. And uh, so they just make shit up 
and say that yeah. they're not doing it. Right. And so um, and everybody kind of knows they're doing this, you know, and you just have to look the other way. But then like the thing with Ed Bloom and like SFFA was just like, no, you can't look the other way yeah. anymore. And like, it's kind of hard for them to just be like, no, like just let us keep doing this and lying to everybody. And, you know, uh, it's really, really important that Harvard is diverse, you know, and mm -hmm. like, I don't know, like both those things are a hard sell, right? Like at yeah. some level. Um, I think what really gets me about the logic and the, the pleadings too, is that um, so, so the whole accusation from other people of color generally, but also white people about Asians and like are, you know, kind of delegitimizing Asian America is basically saying that like Asians always want to be white, right? And that we're right. white adjacent and that, but if you actually think about like the logic of the way affirmative action is working against Asian Americans and what Asian Americans are saying about it, they aren't really saying like, we want to be treated like white people, like the actual discrimination against Asians is specific. Right. right. Um, and it isn't really about white adjacency, but I think like the story will be about white adjacency and how Asians want to be white. Um, yeah. And that's just like a continuing kind of allegation or accusation that I think is delegitimating all of the things that Asians say about their experiences. Right. Right. I think there's way more pushback against that right now than there has been. Yeah. Um, which I find really heartening in some ways, even though some of the people who are mad at who, who push back mm -hmm. also like yell at me, you know, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think with like the anti-Asian violence, that kind of stuff, there is more like, right? There's right. Like there's a, way that more. Position and, that's, yeah. But yeah, they do yell right. at you and, and the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's not just, I, I don't think it's just like people online. I just think that like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's actual people who grew up in a different situation than maybe you and I did in some ways, you know, like, or grew up in a different situation than like me, you and Andy in a lot of ways, right? Like yeah. they, they did grow up in much more sort of cohesive enclaves. And um, they did grow up in uh, like these are people in their 20s right now, I would say, you know, and their understanding of of whatever their culture is from whatever their home country is, as much is is a lot different. And they've never really thought about being white. Right. right? Or like and because it's not something that was like foisted upon them in the yeah. same way. And even if they go to these pl a place like Bowdoin, you know, for example, like when I went, there are no Asian kids, really. Mm -hmm. And now they'll go and there's going to be a ton of Asian kids at yeah. any college that they go to, right? Any elite school that they go to. And so I think it's a little bit different now. And um, But I well, do think so that white think adjacent thing is done. Exactly. Well, the thing is they're seeking out, cla they're seeking out class mobility. But right. I think the, the problem with the accusation is that it collapses class like ascendancy right. with whiteness, which is this whole problem that you were noting with like, then what, what do you do about poor and working class white people? Right, right, right. It doesn't which make sense, is, right? It kind of falls apart. Yeah. And that's that, look, that, that last part, like, what do you do with like poor working class white people who want to go to these schools? You know, the answer I think is basically that if they don't live in Wyoming, like if they live in Wyoming, they'll be okay. Like let's say a kid in Wyoming, like gets like a 1450 NSSAT and has a 4.0 GPA and is like a valedictorian and has done all this impressive <laughs> stuff, that kid's probably going to get into Harvard in a lot of, you know, like, cause like they don't have many kids from like the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, but it's like poor white kids who live in like New York city, for example, right. Or poor white kids who live in the sub in Long Island or something like that. And, um, I don't know, as long as these places are trying to be brand themselves as like places where you, you know, have a different class reality when you leave them. I don't know. I think the door is still kind of shut 
in a lot of ways to that type of person. And, you know, like the response from the, from progressives is always the same, which is like, oh, well, you know, they have, they're still white. And why would you feel bad for like a white person? And I was like, I don't know, you know, like, isn't this just an argument that these types of places shouldn't exist, right? Like that we shouldn't think of (laughs) class mobility in terms of like what college you go to. Like, I find it just so crazy at this point. Um, But I don't know. That's sort of the system that we're given. I don't know how Asians should respond to this, but I mean, I don't want to speak for all Asians or anything like that or give them a (laughs) prescription either. But um, I don't know. I just think it's going to get ugly, you know? Um, And uh, I think in the mainstream press or the elite press, most of the anger will be directed at Ed Bloom and at SFFA and like sort of conservative activists. And they'll say the Asians were a pawn in all of this, you know? But that's also kind of like, you know, like that's also kind of shitty, right? Because like that <laughs> assumes that the Asians don't want this, right? Like right. the people who signed up for SFFA, all these community organizations that support it, that they're like mindless robots that are being manipulated right. by this like master person. It's not true, you know? Like they do want this, you know? That's why they signed up. And a lot of Asian parents want this. And like all these statistics that like are thrown out there, opinion polls that are thrown out there, they're just like, Asian Americans are thinking about themselves as much more Asian than before. And there's thinking about it in a progressive way, like bullshit, you know, like, like you can do anything with a fucking opinion poll, you know, like, or like these people are just like, most Asian Americans support affirmative action. It's like, I don't think that's true, you know? And like, <laughs> like if you change the wording slightly, then the answer changes, you know, like the, the percentages swing wildly. And guess what? The only referendum that we can think where a bunch of Asian people voted on affirmative action, like was destroyed in the Kelly. 2020 California election, right? So like, what are we talking about here? You know, like obviously when the chips are on the table, like these this group of people tends to vote in a certain type of way, you know? So- I don't know. It's all very, it's all just like the thing I'm writing right now is basically just saying like, we like, we're basically every single thing that you poke at in this debate is so mushy and is so like obfuscated that you can't even get your bearings on anything, you know? And in the end, like the only thing that you can cling on to is that like these things that Harvard did seem racist, (laughs) you know? That's like the only thing that you can really cling on to, right? And then the other thing you can cling on to is that it's good for kids to go to a college that is diverse because diversity is good, which is something I also, you know, like, I think that's true too, you know? And so then you have these two contradicting things that are actually, if you think about it, not that contradictory, but they become contradictory when you actually think about it in terms of class and you say, actually, these places are not diverse at all, yeah. even when they're like racially diverse. Right. So um, that's the that's the bind we're in, I think. I yeah, don't know. That's that's very grim. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I was. The, yeah. I mean, that, but that whole diversity logic too, like the way that O'Connor wrote it in Baki, if I'm remembering correctly, was about training the leaders of tomorrow, like for the military oh, and God. right. Yeah. And so that also is like such a kind of gross way of, framing things that we're stuck with. And so this, yes, there's like this wonderful kind of like affective thing about being in groups that are really diverse socioeconomically and racially that I think we've experienced by living in cities. And that have been really big part of my life. And at the same time, the way that that is talked about and rationalized is so, you know, it basically just like perpetuates this whole thing about elite training. Yeah. Yeah. I Do you? Okay. I have a Yeah. Uh, 
Which is like, if that's all these schools did, I think it would be one thing, you know, if they actually did train the elites, <laughs> they, you know? They yeah, up, yeah they did it successfully. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I have a question. Like, all right, so you and I both, like, um, you know, like, went to these schools, right? Like, I would say that, yeah. like, it's pretty clear that we both went to these institutions and that we um, benefited from them in a way, yeah, right? Like, we, sure. like, I think that's hard to deny. Yes. Um, I actually find it very annoying when people deny that, you know, and they're like, oh... I went to Yale Bootstraps. or Princeton and it didn't help me at all. It would have been the same <laughs> if I had gone to like West Virginia, like some state school in West Virginia. It's like bullshit. Like, come on. Like why? Like, it doesn't make that? you, it doesn't make you more like woke to deny that privilege exists. Like what the fuck are you talking about? You know? And it's, it's almost like it's more important for them to not insult the people who go to like these states, like small state schools than it is to like actually think about things in a realistic way, which is like, but yeah, that's no, even you... more insulting. Right. Right. It's like, well, I, I don't know. This is why the internet is so bad, it's but so like, um, yeah. like, do you, do you feel any sort of guilt about that where like, you don't want to, you do feel like you are pulling up the drawbridge if you do say things like, you know, these mm. places shouldn't exist and, or like, you know, they should radically change the way that they do things like, and, um, I will continue to benefit from my associations <laughs> with it, but I don't want anyone else to, because I want to like project this equitable world that, you know, that actually doesn't affect me that much. Yeah. I think the answer is yes. Yeah, me too. Me <laughs> that there too. is that guilt and I yeah. think it demands self-reflection. But also I think, you know, that's why I like talking to you and I think that's what we're trying to do on the podcast and in our work is like we did benefit from systems that are unjust and how can we imagine something better? And I don't think that's wrong either. Like I think it's good right. for people to come out of these institutions with a critical gloss on them and we can say specifically like what was wrong with them and what kinds of things they were reproducing, you know? Um, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah there's certainly like, of course, I've benefited like lavishly, you know, and they've changed right. my class position and, you know, and it's, it's strange and not good. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to, like, it is hard. Like, I, I just don't think it's necessary. I think you, one can acknowledge that without, and then just ask the follow up question, which is like, okay, then what do you want us to do? Do you want us to just like, say, oh, well, everything should be exactly the same in this tiny percentage of the yeah, elite like, of like Asian American kids or Korean kids uh, who somehow got into these places, even if they didn't come from like extreme, like, you know, neither of us went to a private school, for example, right? Like yeah. um, neither of us had any connections to get into these places, right? Like, uh, like it's not like we're legacies or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, but that we were able to, to, get our current class position because of these places almost entirely, right? Like if I didn't go to these places, I I would, for sure. there's zero chance yeah. I would be like doing what I'm doing right now. If I went yeah. to like, let's say even I went to like UNC Greensboro or something like that instead of, but there's no chance, you know, like um, that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. I don't know a single person in, in, you know, like the media positions that we're in that went to any of these schools. Like everyone, like I, I told you, like it's when rare. I worked at the New it's Yorker, rare. I was in like a cubicle of four people and two of the people went to Harvard and two of the people went to Stanford. And I was like the one person who went to Bowdoin. I felt like I was like the dumbest person in the world. <laughs> Not the dumbest person in the world, but that, but that I got oh, at the second rate college, you know. It's like the dumb, you you shouldn't think that sort of yeah. way. But this is the reality of these types of places, right? And yeah. so um, I, I don't know. I find it like very, I don't think that like, I think that one could acknowledge all of that, right? And then still sort of, um, and that your responsibility then is to just be like, okay, well, how does it? You know, how do you make it so that more people can have a better type of class mobility without relying on like the whims of these types of horrible institutions? That's totally consistent and fine. I think um, so. And good. Yeah. And yeah. And I think 
you know, in some of the, I mean, just to take that very narrow example, like I think in the elite media to the strengthening and kind of reform of the unions and, you know, in, right. in some of these places has helped some of this and, and also like broadening out, you know, quote unquote legacy media into the web has increased the number of positions and increased the socioeconomic diversity. So that's good. And I think like right. it's, it's incumbent on people who have benefited from elite, you know, pedigrees basically to, to try to like make some of those systems like institutionalized. Right, right. And one can like argue like the web didn't fully democratize everything and it's just the same course, type of people who like ended up in these places. But guess what? It did, change, it did change it's it different. a little bit. It's it changed different. it a little bit, right? Which is like yeah. crazy given how like sort of sclerotic these institutions yeah. are, you know? So like how much do you actually expect change in these places? Well, it'd be like, well, we've kind of, we're kind of within like the expected change, you know? <laughs> like we haven't exceeded oh, no. the expected change. But <laughs> yeah. We're like somewhere within the expected change that you could like reasonably expect out of these places it's not to excuse these places i'm just saying like to push back against this narrative that like you know nothing has changed or like a little bit has changed in these i think places. and i think there's more it's not there's more conversations about like this this is our incoming intern class like we should not have people from only ivy league schools you know and we right. should you know there there is like that kind of thing i think is said much more yeah the times fellowship program is really interesting you know to me because like you look at the they always publish the pictures of all the people who got it mm -hmm. and I always click on it because I want to see like you know I want to see like how how diverse they got you know mm -hmm. and every year it's like all there's like no white people in it you know um, but mm -hmm. they have gotten and, and my expectation was always that they would just all be kids from Harvard you know but I think they've gotten much better about that you know over the That's past good. few years which is like you know I don't know I, I I mostly think that social media pressure worked on that you know <laughs> so maybe maybe Twitter mobs are good in terms of influencing <laughs> like people who are very online and these institutions that are very online but uh yeah mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. a lot better than it used to be um okay anything else no that's when good. are you coming back to the United States? Uh, I think I'll see you guys in a few weeks, mid mid to late Feb. Oh, are you excited to be back? Yeah, like outside really. of just because of the bed situation? <laughs> the bed is really uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the only drawback to the States. Like the COVID situation here is so much better, but I miss my bed. <laughs> oh my God. I can't tell you. Like you're, what you're describing right now is being in a foreign country and with an uncomfortable bed is actually my nightmare. You know, that's why I never leave my basement. That's why you're all, yeah. <laughs> you know the conditions in your house. Well, I can't sleep in hotels anyway. It doesn't matter how nice oh, the hotel really? is. I can't sleep. I like wake up at three o'clock on the dot every single time I stay in a hotel and then I can't go back to sleep. Oh so God, I just like basically horrible. spend from three to six AM doing nothing and then I go get like a fucking, you know, breakfast burrito or something like that at six nine dollars instead of seven. Yeah, it's the worst fucking life. <laughs> and so this idea of being I love country, hotels. Oh my god, I can't stand them. Yeah, uncomfortable bed, <laughs> hotel, like weird faucets, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't even, I can't handle it. <laughs> I can't handle it. This says a lot about our, our schedules for the last couple of years. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm just like, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to, I have to go on vacation at some point. Um, I need to go somewhere. Like, this is getting ridiculous. Like, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't left. You've Berkeley. been driving to Washington State occasionally to see your folks, I guess. Right. That's it. It's not really a vacation. Uh, if you though. take that out, I have not been anywhere except for Las Vegas for a four day trip with my friends in two and a half years. No. Do you fly to New York for work at all? A couple Absolutely times? not. No, I haven't been you to haven't New York since I moved out of You it. haven't yeah. flown since 2019. Yeah. I flew to Las oh, Vegas. Oh, except for Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's it. That's it. I haven't been on a longer than an hour and a half flight since it's been, uh, and I don't, I don't know when that's going to clear up, uh, but I don't know. I feel very comfortable. Okay. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every single week. Next week, I think Andy will be back with a, uh, is that when he's going to talk about Ascension, a documentary yeah. and an interview he did with the two creators of that documentary, which is great. Um, and if, one of my favorite things about the show is Andy talking about China and Andy interviewing people. Andy's very good at interviewing people, you know? It's interesting for an academic. Um. <laughs> Such a backhanded compliment at the end. Without all of our years of experience as journalists with interviewing people, you know, oh where we God, pretend Andy. to listen and just like talk over years. them the whole time. Andy doesn't do any of that, so I think that's why he did uh interviewer um if you want to support the show it's goodbye.substack.com you can show uh sign up for five dollars a month and we will send you a link to join our discord channel if you want to email us it's uh time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or at ttsg pod on twitter hammy thanks for taking the time um i'm glad you're coming back at some point i hope the beds you should get like a bed can you buy like a bed cover or something like that like one of those pads or some shit <laughs> it's too late <laughs> We have a few weeks left. Okay, so you're going to just tolerate this for two to three weeks. Okay, all right. See you later. Bye. Um.